from the internet, it's the Localhost Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. Welcome to episode five of the Local Host Podcast, a podcast where we discuss everything and anything related to the wonderful world of web development and surrounding topics. In this episode, we shall be talking about open source software. I'm Mark Drew. I'm merging in the pull requests into the master branch of the Local Host Podcast is Rob Dudley. Hello. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? Hi, Mark. I'm good. How are you? Um, wonderful. This is another great time for us to be recording. If the audience has to know, we record this on Saturday mornings, just in time for everyone to be trimming their hedges, destroying buildings, and to be generally causing a lot of noise around. So I think I can hear the street sweeper coming up the road as well. <laughs> We're going to have like the ice cream van. We're going to have every kind of <laughs> of, of noisy uh, vehicle in the in the neighbourhood, including the police, are going to no doubt come by, followed by the fire engines. There is actually a fire station not far away, so I am really tempting fate saying that. Anyway. So, yeah, if you if you do catch any rough cuts or edits that don't make a lot of sense, we're probably just editing out the emergency services, <laughs> uh, removing SWAT teams. <laughs> you know, the usual. That'll be a luck, the SWAT team just crashing through the building. Um, anyway, so back to the show. So what are we talking about this month? We're talking about condiments. Condiments, open sourcey. Uh, open source software. Source spelled completely different to your habanero or Cholula or HP source, but more in source. The, in other words, code, which is all, all that we talk about in this uh, podcast. Well, apart from last week, we didn't talk much about code at all, did we? No. But anyway, back to on topic. So we're, we're talking about open source software, which kind of rules our lives, uh, whether we... Know it or not, even though if you might work for a big company like, you know, Microsoft or a small company and have bought licenses for everything, you still open source is prevalent everywhere. So we should talk about what um, open source is. WTF is open source, Rob. It's uh, like source, um, but you've opened it. <laughs> right. In comparison to what? That it was compiled before? No, no, as opposed to when you first buy the source, it's closed. Okay, I'm going to get off the the source, um, source puns. Right, right. Let's get yeah. Off the, so let's get off the source. The, the source happens later on in the day. Rob. <laughs> I should be so lucky. Um, what is open source? It's a process whereby code ideas, I suppose, um, the core ingredients of projects are made freely available for contribution, collaboration, and use. Yeah, I think I think the basics of it. That's a, that's a good, very generic thing. But I think the basics of it was that source, if you don't know, generally is compiled. In other words, you can't see the logic behind the programs that you're using, right? So Microsoft Word, for example, big, you know, you can't see how when you press the copy button, what's the code behind the format button? Yeah, right? and so you'd buy but, a copy of of Word for want of a better example, um, you would get right. the compiled binary. You do not get the source code. So not only can you not see what's going on, you can't tweak it, you can't change it. Right. So I think there was a movement in the late 90s um, 
to open up that source. In other words, you could see the source, which means that not just you could see it and see what was underneath, which is like uh, an academic you know, exercise of going, oh, that's very pretty. But is you were able to then actually copy it, modify it, and contribute back to the source. So if you found a bug, you could actually go and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and around that, uh, different type of licensing grew out of that. So that licensing allows you to do that and has certain restrictions. I think we'll go into about licensing a little bit later. But an important part about open source, or one of the important parts about open source, is the actual licensing that allows you to do that. Because you know those big contracts that you never read when you open up iTunes, that 4,000 pages of, of contracts that the EULA, the end user license agreement, that's the licensing that you agree to use a certain bit of software with. So Word will have one of those, and you would have agreed to it very quickly, probably slipped your mind that you've just agreed to sell your soul to to Microsoft. But in open source software, it's saying like, hey, you're allowed to use this software. You're allowed to modify the software. You're probably even allowed to sell it uh, as is, as long as you don't remove that license. Yep. Have I got that yeah, right? Uh, summarizes it quite neatly. The only thing I would say is that um, open source's history is a bit difficult to put a start point on. Um, we've mm. got, um, like, in the late 90s, we've got um, the OSI Open Source Initiative being founded. Before right. that, in 91, um, a, a tiny open source project that we'll talk a bit more about later on called Linux. Um, oh, and yeah. even before that, you've got the uh, GNU or, or the new, I'm not exactly sure which one you're meant to use to pronounce it. Is it GNU? New? Probably, probably silent G. Yeah. Uh, either way, you've got the new project that was Storman and his band of, of merry coders. And that was actually in, in kind of the early 80s. So that's 83, 84. Um, oh, and wow, they yeah. were chasing this concept of freedom um, of um, source code and freedom of, of, of software um, way back then. With good foresight, I would say. So, or sheer bloody-mindedness, uh, depending. <laughs> they could have just been like, no, we've well, gone about it for ages. Yeah. I'm guessing that even Tim Berners-Lee at the beginning of the web, there was a lot of that going on. Well, I think... Because we're allowed to use it without having to license the web. It was meant to be free for everyone to use. I still don't get the analogy of free as in beer, not as in speech, or, or the other way around. Um, we can run through that in a, in a bit when we talk about potentially some of the licensing. I think it's actually sure. it's really interesting to say, without spending too long navel-gazing into the, the, the back annals of open source, um, it does derive heavily from the concept of academic sharing of information. This idea right. that you know researchers or what have you in all the universities would actually work together, collaborate on projects, and it wasn't really until it became a commercial thing that anybody started giving too much of a crap about who owned it or what have you. So you'd publish your concepts and share them. Other people would build on your work. And this is something that academia has been doing since day dot. Well, it's part of the scientific process, yeah. right? In a in a in a certain way. So if you take software to the scientific process, it's like here I have created some software and all my peers can peer into it and go like, yeah, well, this is good. This is bad. Here's a change to it that makes it better, um, which you don't have in commercial closed source software because it's only the, and I'm doing air quotes, which are really work on, on, on podcasts very well. Um, this, the, the experts of that software are the only ones that are allowed to know it. Right. So you can't, so security problems come out of it a lot more out of closed source software than they do than open source software because they're easier to spot. Yeah. 
you've got more eyes on it. And this uh, comes around to, do you want to do the Eric Raymond intro? No, uh, you can go ahead. There's, um, I, it's, it's not really a book. It's more of kind of a, a longer form article or a thesis, um, which if you haven't read it already, please do, uh, by Eric Raymond called The Cathedral and the Bazaar in which he looks at this emerging culture of collaborative development versus the traditional siloed development, um, so open versus closed, um, and examines um, the pros and cons of both. Um, one of the interesting things that he says is that technically open source shouldn't work. You know, Analyzed according to any logical or, or sensible view, there's no way that getting a whole bunch of people just chucking stuff in should work. And yet it's been proven that it does. And it produces not always more secure, but generally speaking, uh, better reviewed code. You've got more eyes on it. Uh, there are a couple of, mm-hmm. of notable recent cock-ups. Um, <clears throat> OpenSSL. Um, oh, right. Yeah, but then at the same time, you've got the same kind of issues going on in, in the the closed source world. You know, Microsoft uh, literally just got their pants taken down by WannaCry, right? And fair enough, they found the right. bug, I patched mean, it, but it was there. But but fair enough, and and actually, I want to say that WannaCry is due to the lack of open sourcing because it attacked a lot of institutions that were running very old versions of the software. Why do they have old versions of the software? I'm going to guess is is because of the licensing and upgrading costs. I mean, I know there's other reasons because probably they have software that can only run on Windows 95 or something like that, right? But if you had a different concept of like always upgrading because, hey, it's free, that's not a pain point in the upgrade, it would have been much easier because no one has to sign off a check for X amount to a, to a supplier, right? Yeah. Uh, so WannaCry attacked a whole bunch of old machines or old operating systems that wasn't even supported by Microsoft. They, in fact, I think a lot of institutions had to pay extra to Microsoft to keep extend the EOL on it. And then they extended it so that they could replace it, and they still hadn't. So, yeah, I feel sorry for you for being attacked for by WannaCry, but seriously, guys, you know. Um, so anyway... Um You've got, um, yeah, we're kind of marching through the 90s. Um, the internet has happened. Well, the internet happened in the 60s. Um, the web has happened. Um, right. And we start to get, you know, serious, serious traction. We get um, household names, I suppose, being released as or re-released as open source projects. Hmm. So, well, I think the big one was uh, Netscape. Yep. So the uh, at the beginning of the browser stuff, you had Netscape coming in with Mozilla, was it? Or no, no, Netscape Communicator. Netscape Communicator. Uh, which, uh, which then became Mozilla, right? That then became so, Mozilla, which then actually gave birth to Firefox. And another one, but I can't remember the name of it. There's a whole range there is. of them. Um, Firefox used to be called something different. I think, didn't it used to be Firebird? No, that's an email client. No, that's Thunderbird. Oh, <laughs> We know our stuff here, people. We know our anyway, stuff. Anyway. Um, anyway, moving on. So we get um, right. <laughs> Netscape um, release their internet suite, and um, this is something that's actually kind of it set a precedent because with the exception of, of the big IE, um, most of the major modern web browsers now, I believe, are open source projects, right? Or very closely based on an open source project. Yeah. Safari is based on WebKit. Opera is right. kind of open sourcey. 
kind of. Uh, uh, OSX is based on DBN, isn't it? Oh, uh, OSX is based on Dharma. Uh, BSD. Oh, beg your pardon. Yeah, I should know this stuff, but uh, but yeah, I'm not into my operating systems. We could we could nerd out about this stuff all day, but I suppose the point is that Netscape taking that first step kind of has it wasn't just a a, a one off flash in the pan. Their choice to make that project accessible has, by and large, led rise to the modern web that we enjoy today. It's certainly led rise to the the fall, the dominance of Internet Explorer. Um, modern web standards implementation, the kind of speed of iteration that we're seeing on the web, the stuff that we work with every single day, you could actually make a case to say this is all down to the fact that Netscape open sourced their browser and so everybody since then has been building the web in a more open way. Right. Um, so now we get to a point that, well, I get, I'm going to go into the 2000s, that you start getting a lot more well, version control comes out of this because you can't have open source without version control, right? So we've already talked about this, so I'm not going to reiterate all of that. But my earliest remembering uh, memories, a big, big pun, of open source was SourceForge, mm -hmm. right? That so many projects were on SourceForge because they gave you, at the time, was CVS access, right? And you needed a server for, to, to do any version control with CVS. Um, and then they upgraded to SVN at some point, but all the projects I worked on were on SourceForge, I think. I think there was another one before that, but I think that's the first one I remember. It's certainly the first collaborative platform I remember. I mean, there was there were right. publishing platforms. It was like, was it Fresh Meat? Um, okay, it used to be yeah. a publishing platform where you could upload your source for other people to download, but I don't think that had collaboration. I could be wrong here, so feel free to just tell me off on, on the internet uh, later on if I am. Of course, SourceForge gives rise to... Um, was it Assembler? No. Was uh, no. SourceForge gives GitHub? rise to GitHub, right? Um, it's that yeah, right. kind of space, this idea that we have a central portal, we collaborate, um, we, we share information, um, and you know, lesser, lesser beings, Bitbucket and what have you, and oh, yeah, God. all yeah. of the various myriad clones of, of GitHub. Yeah, GitHub w was very interesting because of its, as an author or as a user, it was free, right? So if I wanted to create a project, really low barrier to entry. I could literally just sign up, create it, and put it on there. So that means that a lot of projects have gone there. You, you're in the PHP world. Is that on GitHub? Is that the main repo for, for PHP on GitHub? Maybe I not. don't um, know. I mean, this is the thing. Is I'm in the PHP well, let's world, have a little, I like, contribute to PHP core because I'm not that good right. um, a, C, a <laughs> C programmer. Uh, where is PHP? It's probably got their own, like, thing because it'll be maintained by the Zen guys. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's not, I don't think it's there. It's the, the, doing a, a search for PHP on GitHub is just going to, you know, bring too much stuff. And I think what I was involved in... Um, uh, Rylo, which was a big open source project back in the day, is now uh, called Lucy, and that was on Bitbucket because it's on Jira. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no. So it's it, kind of yeah, it was in the that. Atlassian world. Yeah, it was in the Atlassian world because I think we got a free license from um, uh, the name is escaping me. The people that do Red Hat, anyway. Um, Red Hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. Um, I'm getting all of this wrong. Um, but then Lucy moved to GitHub, and that's a much easier 
place to handle, um, you know, pull requests and being able to to manage like automation because it's now nicely in the open. You don't have to log in to get the code. Yeah. For example, so you can automate stuff much easier. I think two things. Firstly, yes, the PHP source code is on GitHub. Um, but they they mirror it to GitHub from their own kind of primary Git repository. But they are using Git, um, okay. so yeah, there's that answered. Spot of frantic googling. Um, <laughs> the other would be um, to say that, of course, we've talked about version control a lot, but it, it kind of probably bears stating why version control is so important for an open source project. For those who haven't clocked onto this yet, you're yeah. going to have contributors yeah. from all over the world. Ideally, right. in a successful open source and, and, project. Um, and this is actually where, this is why Git was invented. It was created by Mr. Torvalds, who wrote the aforementioned tiny little um, you know, kernel project. Um, it was designed to make his life easier in managing this project. So things, terminology that we use day in, day out, like you know, pull requests and merges and all of this, were all out of the pain that he had basically running the Linux project over email, which was how he ran it before oh. he invented Git. <laughs> running anything over email is, is a nightmare. So so many solutions have come out of trying not to use email to do stuff. Trying not to use email, trying not to use Excel. Um, all right. But yeah, so when you're talking about kind of um, you know, moving over to GitHub and all of these features, a lot of these are actually designed explicitly to solve the problems they're solving, which is kind of new because... A lot of the previous tools for software development team enablement were very much focused around, well, you're all in the same company, you're all in the same room, potentially. You know, you don't need this idea of distribution and, and collaboration. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, what's interesting about open source is that it's great for big projects, right? And because now the tools have gone around it, but it's also great for smaller projects. Yep. So like projects that I create, you can go like, by default, I'm going to make it open source in case it helps somebody else. And this is stuff like NPM, um, which is closely tied to open source because you're saying like, here, have some some project and is going to help you, uh, like left pad or something <clears> like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the wrong one to choose right there. But, but yeah, I think it's... It it spans the full uh, gamut. So you've got everything from the huge programming languages that are open source. Um, you know, Java's still open source, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Should be. Yeah. I don't know what, what Oracle are up to these days, those naughty little buggers. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, They're Oracle. They're probably don't, really don't busily see, trying to close it. Uh, but yeah, right the way down to something like LeftPower, which is a tiny little module in um, Node. Um, and all of these things are put out there effectively to allow collaboration and what have you. But also, it's this idea that don't reinvent the wheel, this stuff that we talk about all the time when we're doing software development, um, open source modules that drop into programming languages or, or projects or frameworks or whatever it happens to be allow you to do less work. Mm. But having said that, uh, the, here in comes the problem with open source, which is the licensing. So like if you have some modules, some modules allow you to be put into whatever software you want. And some modules say that the software that you're building has to also be open source. So GPL versus LGPL, for example. Yeah, um, bit of a minefield, that one. Right. I'm, I don't. I think this is like we are not lawyers. We can't tell you this, but it's basically the copy left and copyright type type licensing. But this also saying 
essentially there's going to be two licenses. One, you can do what the hell you want with this, as long as it's like the license remains Which with is, it. So like the Apache, MIT, and and various other licenses. Now those are free as uh, in beer, right? Uh, uh, I guess yep. right. <laughs> Beer is never free. Um, and then you've got other licenses like GPL, if I'm not mistaken, which says you're, the software that you're using this library in has to also be GPL. Yeah, so GPL has so been described in various different terms. It is a truly open, free-as-in-speech license, but it does have this rather nasty viral side effect um, in that depending on what you drop a GPL component into and how you access it, um, it can require legally that the rest of your project immediately be licensed under the GPL. So it's kind of, it infects um, yep. the rest of the project. And there are, there are various ways where this doesn't happen. Um, so it comes down to linking. This is the the big right. thing. If if um, if you've done the kind of good old fashioned C development, um, you know you link the library as in you compile the library in alongside your code. If that library is GPL licensed and you're compiling it into the mix with your code, and they're all kind of sitting together in the same binary or what have you, you're probably going to need to review whether or not you need to GPL your entire project because you probably will. If you're just using like a GPL JavaScript library on your website, that does not mean you need to GPL your entire project. So it is a minefield. The most right. recent example I can think of when this has been kind of challenged, tested, and required a massive U-turn is the WordPress project. Okay. Um, well, there? WordPress was was kind of growing, and it was based off of I can't remember what the original project was called now, but it was based off of an early stage blogging system. Uh, Mr. Mullenweg um, picked it up, ran with it. Um, it's always been GPL licensed. Flash forward, and it's kind of taking over the web, and you've got all of these people making plugins and themes, which are mm -hmm. PHP that is actually run through the WordPress core code. It's kind of linked, right? Um, and right. there was a challenge, um, a legal challenge, which may or may not have been from the FSF, uh, Free Software F uh, Foundation, Federation, Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, at the end of all of this, the WordPress core team worked out that, yeah, mea culpa, we have to require that any code that's used in the WordPress project is open source. Okay. So all of these commercial themes that were previously closed and you had to pay $50, $200 to get um, now have to release their code uh, on demand, effectively. Well, that's interesting because that's kind of a... a I guess that goes in the name, the copy left, but <clears throat> it's kind of going to your siblings rather than up and down, right? Do you see what I mean? It's like, you know, a, a theme would be a, a, a thing that's on the side of the software rather than part of the stack. Yeah, um, but it's all about the way that it's actually run. It's the way that that code is incorporated and interpreted by the project. And this was why it took a while. They, they had some back and forth and what have you. But if you, if you look at it, it's the WordPress executable, the WordPress framework is the one that includes that theme. At some point, it's got to run those files and that logic. Um, and it was determined right. that even in an interpreted language, a dynamic language rather, um, that, can, that constituted linking. Therefore, yeah. GPL. Okay. Boom. Right. Boom. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so there are some little minefields with that, and this is why I've generally stuck with MIT Apache or Apache license. Not that there's much difference between them, if I recall correctly. Again, not no. a lawyer. 
I'm, I'm not here to read your license agreements. But this also gives rise to other stuff, which I don't think we have in our show notes. So I'm just throwing it there. It's like the Creative Commons approach yeah. as well. So it's, so it's open sourcing of content, of design, of of artistry, of things like this podcast isn't um, Creative Commons, but we could make it Creative Commons, which means that somebody could use it in its entirety. I don't know exactly that you could use it for modification. You could change it. You could take samples from it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, this this comes back to the fact that open source and software licensing and all the rest of it comes back to copyright. Um, this is this is very legally heavy. Um, so <laughs> we should have got a lawyer to just like sit here going, nope, don't We're say gonna- that. <laughs> We're going to need the the lawyer foghorn just to go over this when we edit it. But anyway, um, so yeah, yeah, copyright is intrinsic in anything you create. Um, you just have it. You don't need to apply for it. You don't need to register it. You have it. Um, and it's quite hard to divest yourself of copyright. It has to be done in writing. There has to be a contract. And this is where Creative Commons mm. came along again around about the same time that kind of internet, uh, sorry, information sharing on the internet was really booming. It came around about the same time that blogging started being a thing and all the rest of it. And they're basically, they've done the work for you. So they give you the legal, long legal licensing that you need to make sure that, yeah, I can share this work, but I can share it with certain caveats, right? Um, and there's, I think, there's three main pr- components of Creative Commons, and you can combine them in any which way. Right. So you've got the idea that um, you have uh, share alike, so you can use this, but you have to share um, what you build. Um, mm-hmm. There's um, the two restrictive clauses, non-commercial, so you can use this, but you can't make money out of it. Um, right. And Which is generally the one you kind of want to have... Um, for let's say this podcast, if we this is not open source, it's not Creative Commons. But if we said, "Hey, we're fine with you using this podcast," to give an example for the audience, um, and pasting it on your blog, maybe resampling Rob to make him say funny things or whatever, but we're not fine with you repurposing this, putting your own branding on it, and selling it on I don't know wherever you on 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 iTunes as a as a paid-for podcast. Yeah, so you get right? commercial awesome. restrictions. And also, because I'm not happy that you're going to sample me and make me sound like Donald Duck, um, I can also apply um, a derivative works restriction. So basically, I can say, you can use this, but you have to use it wholesale as is. You're not allowed to monkey with right. it or change it. Um, now, in its purest form, you think, well, actually, certainly if we think back to open source in terms of code, that actually makes it fairly useless because all you've done is you've said, you can use this thing for nothing. Um but right. sometimes that might be what you want to do um, for a, a, a creative work like a podcast or this, especially, say, a, a, an artwork or a, um, a font or something like that. You may not want somebody to muck about with your artistic realization. So you can restrict whether right. or not they can, they can tweak it, basically. Right. I think we should, so- we should consider applying a Creative Commons to this podcast. I'm going to put you on the spot there, even though you can just edit me straight out. But I do think we should, yeah. in, the, in, the, uh, in the spirit of, of openness and sharing. Fine. It's literally a tick box. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just when you, we upload this to SoundCloud, we just have to say whether it's, it's uh, Creative Commons or not. And at the time, I was like, mm, I don't know, haven't thought about it, haven't talked to Rob, Rob's gone off now. So, um, no. So you've got Creative Commons, you've got GPL, which is very, very free. In, in terms of speech, it's the one that the uh, the open source community really, really rally behind because it forces total freedom and sharing. But then you've got the other little right. ones. You've got MIT, BSD, Apache. 
Um, and there's a little bit of a difference between them, but not masses. Uh, that Well, nothing that makes for interesting conversation on a podcast. Um, and then you've got the fun ones, right? Okay. Um, there's um, a slight language alert. Uh, there's the do whatever the F you want with it license. Do whatever the F you want to license. <laughs> yeah. This is a legit thing. We'll put links in the show notes. Um, because there's an open source initiative, uh, which is opensource.org, which you can have a lot of license. So if you need to get a license mm-hmm. for your project, you can have a read there. Yeah, and they actually make you a know. really good job of explaining the difference between you know the full free as in speech, free as in beer um, licensing and, and which one you should maybe think about considering. Um, and then, of course, there's there's the final massive mega thing, which is you just make something public domain, you sign over your copyright, and it's gone, um, which is probably not advisable. Right. Yeah, I mean, public domain is some stuff falls into the public domain at the end of copyright. So I can't. The Disney organization has to come in here for a bit of blame because of Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. So the Disney organization wanted to, has obviously Mickey Mouse is very very old and and Disney has died off and they keep they are the ones that keep on extending uh Disney the the guy has died off in case, sorry spoilers I don't is it too soon too soon <laughs> <laughs> sorry Walt <coughs> sorry Walt uh so the Disney organization wanted to keep the copyright of, of Mickey Mouse so they can keep on making money and I think currently it stands as like at the time of the creator creator's death Plus a hundred or seventy-two years. I can't remember. One of the, it's one or the other. Um, and the and because Mickey Mouse is going to come out of of copyright in about ten years, you know that Disney's lawyers are at the moment scrambling, or probably very lazily or very calmly trying to ratify and lobby so that they can extend the copyright. Yeah, they are lobbying now, hard. I would imagine to find some way yeah. of keeping control of Mickey. Right, and because that's that's uh, they're still making money on that. Now, this wasn't the case before. Uh, that's why you can use Jules Verne's work, you know, because there isn't a Jules Verne estate that's going. No, you have to pay us money. Yeah, and this is uh, because it goes out. Of interestingly, this is kind of we're getting away from open source a little bit, but this goes into right. uh, things like Gutenberg, um, the Gutenberg project, okay. which basically has right. a massive treasure trove of out of copyright public domain literature. Literally, there's right, tons of stuff. It's, uh, it's amazing, and you can read it all yeah. and, and stuff like that, which, which is kind of interesting. In the open source model, is kind of like emulating that, but from now, from the moment I've created it, is not in the public domain, but it means that anyone is able to use yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it's actually more about retaining control, perversely, because whereas you can copyright something, once it pops out of copyright, it's in the public domain. You can't do anything to stop anybody using that material, what have you, in any way. Public domain is no holds barred, right? All bets are off. Whereas a software okay. license is persistent, and that license yeah, can true. grant certain other restrictions, whether that's the GPL yeah. or um, you know, requiring that it be used in a certain way. So it's actually a better way of ensuring freedom than just saying, you know what, I'm just going to chuck it out there. Uh, one mm-hmm. very quick thing, just before we finish off public domain, my favorite public domain copyright um, kind of ending, happy birthday. Oh yeah, happy you see, it was this last year, or like even maybe even early this year, mm. the Happy Birthday song that we know and love finally came out of copyright, uh, which means that it can now be legitimately used in in TV shows and movies, 
and they can and restaurants and restaurants right. can so this, this is a funny thing right because i used to go to one place that they sadly closed down in greenwich uh for our birthdays and they would sing a completely different song which was completely kind of through you but the, it, uh, you know on someone's birthday i kept on thinking this is because of copyright they can't they literally can't sing happy birthday in a restaurant because of copyright so they used to come up with another weird song but anyway so we've kind of got all of these different options and and what we end up with is a whole bunch of different um a lot of different software projects there are probably millions of different open source uh, projects, including things like from the full uh, operating systems right the way down to tiny libraries. Why would you, well, why would you not use it, but why would you look at using open source tech? In the, in the benefits is that the problem has already been solved and, not, and hopefully, and just because of the nature of it, uh, enough eyes have gone on it eyes that are cleverer than your eyes or brains behind those eyes uh, that have hopefully fixed it and ha and are continuing to fix stuff in there so you don't have to reinvent the wheel I mean and this is the thing in software it's like why keep on reinventing the wheel unless you're going to make a better wheel and if you're going to make a better wheel why not get an existing wheel and improve it rather than start from the ground up as software developers would seem to be always be doing yeah we are masters of, of treading the same ground. Um, so we get the project. Um, it's done. It's built. It's potentially, hopefully, still being maintained and updated. So we know we're going to get nice improvements as time goes on. My personal uh, biggest thing, if you're working in a, a corporate team or have you, assuming you're GPL aware, um, how much does open source cost normally, Mark? Well, zero. It's, it's zero. Free. It's free as in beer. As in beer. No, yeah. wait. Um, <laughs> but I always pay for beer. Well, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're absolutely correct in that matter. Um, so, yeah, another massive pro in the open source world is, generally speaking, the software does not come with a license fee. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay per core or per user uh, or per year. Um, which is not to say that there isn't a commercial side to open source. There are many projects that uh, maintain themselves by selling, say, support or consultancy around an open source system. But you're not having to pay for the software. If you want, you can get people in-house that mm. um, can do that for you and you don't have to pay the company. So. Red Hat are a great example of this. Um, Linux mm. distribution, it's kind of viewed as commercial, although it's not. Um, but they give all of their best work away free in Fedora and the CentOS project. Um, what you're actually buying with Red Hat is a support license. You get access to their updates and what have you. Yeah, and this is a big thing that, from my background, having worked on a couple of open source projects, that in a way mimicked uh, a closed project, a commercial project, that the users don't really understand that in my experience, has been that there is a massive expectation of open source projects to behave like commercial projects and provide support immediately. And you go, well, this is what you pay for. You pay for the support. Why? I never paid support for the other commercial one. And you're like, yeah, because you paid for the license. That was what was paying for the support. Um, and there is a, a massive expectation sometimes it just, in certain worlds. I don't, I don't know in, in the ones that I've seen. That is, well, why haven't you fixed my ticket? It's like, well because it's your ticket. Literally, you're the only person that's interested in this feature. 
for example. Yeah. And, and, and people get insulted because it's like, well, it's really important. Well, it's very important to you, not to anybody else, <laughs> or to the project as a whole, right? And what this leads on to is, is, is very specific, that a lot of these projects either are a sideline. In other words, the com- a company does something. Let's say uh, my, my company is a consulting company, right? And in, if in the process of doing some consultancy, we come up with a great idea, do a project, and we'll put it out there just for other people to use so that they don't have to fix this. But we're now not selling that project. We're not, now not the man- – we can be the maintainers of it because we're still using it and we still have an interest in it. But when people ask for support with that, we'd obviously charge them. Yeah, right. which is I say it's obviously charge them, but they go well. You released it, you support it. Oh yeah, but you released it under a license that means that they can fix it, or they can change it or modify it. Um, and if they want somebody right. else to do that, whether it's you or me or whoever, they're gonna have to pay that person to do that work or convince them somehow, maybe with free beer, yeah, um, to do that work. <laughs> That's how you get the free one of beer. many God. many ways. All right. Um, Right. So, I suppose that one of the the biggest um, one of the biggest confusions around open source is when actually businesses do get it into their head. It's like it's open source. It's free, and then they're being asked to pay mm-hmm. for things like um, you said it was free. It's like well, yeah, but we still need um, expertise. We still need consultancy. We still need this feature or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. And we still need fundamentally. You know, you can say that um, say MySQL. Um, oh, bad example, MariaDB. There we go, much simpler. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah. MariaDB is a free database, and you're like, oh, great, amazing, I can run my database for free. Well, you still need to install it somewhere, host it. You're still buying hardware. You've still got to pay electricity to keep the lights on. You've still got to buy a computer. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it does it does cause confusion. <laughs> Not if you go serverless. Well, you're still paying Amazon to go, can you do serverless databases? <laughs> is that a thing yet? Are yeah. we there? No. Oh, Not thank yet. God. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready for serverless persistent storage. Uh, I don't. I don't even understand that. Um, but I think that, that there are other sides of 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 this, which is apart from providing the stuff, it's actually contributing to it. So uh, we kind of touched on it before, which was why reinvent the wheel? Why not go and find a project? And once you've found that project, you can go. Okay, it does most of what I need it to do. The usual eighty twenty rule, probably. Uh, that does 80% of what I need to do. But now I'm, I can extend it if I know the language that it's written in. I can extend it to do what I want it to do. Um, and once you've done that, you have this idea of forking the project, which you can do many puns, but we won't. I'm going to tap that on the head. So we can fork a project, and then you can do all your modifications to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So now you have your project with your specific modifications. And if you think they're good enough or relevant enough, I would say, rather than good enough, because I'm sure they're fantastic, you're a fantastic coder, uh, but more relevant enough, you can then say to the original project, hey, do you want this as part of back into your project, like these new features? And then you create what's called a pull request, right? So then they can have a look, say this is, you know, this widget that you've added is wonderful, great, and you then they'll accept that pull request into the main project. Okay, the mechanics around it about continuous integration, whether you've written tests, et cetera, et cetera, but that's the main flow. There's a bit here that a lot of projects miss, and it's kind of important when we're going around copyright, is this idea of the contributor's agreement, right? So, and this can bite you as, as a project owner, right? Because you have to get every bit of code that people have written 
they have to sign a contract that says you are allowed to use this here you go i have created this of my free will and i am not tied down by any ip restrictions for me to give you the ip back because when we were talking last week do you yeah, remember yeah. we were talking about that when you work you do remember right when we we're talking about <laughs> it was it was only about, one episode ago mark <laughs> yeah i know um so if you're working for a certain company those contributions to open source that you're doing of your own free will you actually have to get a contributors agreement to say that you are handing over that ip and, and that ip not might not be yours to give because you you did it during work hours or doing by your contract so this is a kind of again you know lawyer horn blowing in the background that we have to, i don't know what a lawyer horn sounds like but it sounds like that they, but more expensive to, <laughs> um so you have to sign a contributors agreement and make sure that your company if you're working for the man has signed that off or you've done it in your own time depending what your your contract is this is important for the project because if you want to change license you have to ask all of the people that have contributed right so you might want to just go from an mit to apache license for whatever reason or you might want to make it commercial right you need to ask everybody if they haven't given you the ip to do that i suppose the other thing is that as the contributor to the project you're the one that's on the hook if you haven't actually ensured that this is there. So if you contribute to a GPL project and uh, say your employer owns the IP, they're not going to go after the project. They're going to go after you because you're the one that breached right. the terms of your agreement with the employer. The project doesn't care. Right. Um, they might help, yeah. maybe, depending on the size of the project, depending yeah. on the nastiness of the employer and how much of a dick they're being about it. Um, or they'll just have to revert those comments and say, like, there you go, yeah, your, your lovely feature is out of the project. So, contributors agreement, critical, especially if you're getting involved in an open source project, you will normally at some point be asked yeah. to sign one effectively or agree to one uh, as part of your first um, your first pull request Come being in. accepted. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, bear in mind, this, there's nothing to stop you just grabbing that code, forking it and working on it, but if you want to mm-hmm. contribute it back, hence the name. It's a contributor yeah. agreement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other um, ways, I suppose, you know, that we can contribute to open source. Um, lots of systems these days. We talked about it briefly with npm uh, and what have you. Have this concept of plugins. They have kind of micro projects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always uh, always the case that you should go and have a look and see if there's something out there that does what you want first and try and improve that. But frankly, if there isn't anything, or if you genuinely are inventing a new wheel, or if you just fancy a bit of a challenge, um, then you can create this kind of new module, um, and mm-hmm. that can form part of a broader ecosystem. And this is the same right. in. There's other. Sorry, go on. Well, well, the, the, another thing that came to mind is how we can contribute to open source projects rather than the mechanics of it is a lot of people say well i don't know the language that is written in it might have been written in java you might be a cfml developer it might be written in c you might be a php developer you don't know i don't know what php is written in probably <laughs> c right um and you say well i can't contribute to the project you know either you can send them money so they can buy beer so therefore the beer is free mm-hmm. uh but and more importantly is documentation Developers are crap at documentation, and if you see something that's either missing or incorrect or whatever, there's usually repositories of the documentation that you can contribute to. And 
more often than not, I say, well, I can't find this documentation and I've solved it one way. And then they forget about it. It's like, well, why didn't you just quickly write that up and submit that? That's your contribution to the open source project. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've had this with um, a couple of the projects that I've been involved in. My commits have been documentation commits. And they're not glamorous. They're right. not sexy. They're not getting, you know, but they are version controlled. They are managed. They're subject to a lot of the same kind of mechanics. And mm-hmm. realistically, it probably has about the same level of value. Uh, the no. other, I suppose, way of looking at how you can contribute is testing. And this one, again, a bit contentious. Oh, yeah. But all of these things have uh, test branches or develop branches. There's new versions coming out all the time. They need people to do solid QA. Uh, right. Otherwise, the next version of the thing is going to be rubbish. Um, and they rely on their community of users to test it. And the here's yeah. the thing, report bugs. Yeah. Which is, I mean, this is why you have bug hunts and, and uh, um, you know, rewards for bugs. Yeah, so you've got bounty programs things. and all the rest of it. But a lot yeah, of the... It. Now, this is actually one of the, the downsides of open source because, let's face it, the bug reporting systems on most large open source projects are basically treated as a help desk. Uh, mm. But at the same time, you look at when they're used successfully... Good bug reporting is a thing of joy to see. You've got people from all around the world throwing really detailed information, test cases, reproduction cases, you know, giving the developers mm. all the information they need. The bugs are divvied up and parceled out. It's, it's literally like a quality improvement party. It is stunning to watch. <laughs> a quality improvement party, that's what every project needs. So, yeah, if you don't know how to contribute and you don't really want to write documentation or you just don't have anything to add, you know, grab a copy of the next version, test it against your project, see what breaks, yeah. and please, please, please read the bug reporting guidelines first before you send your ticket in. Um, but they'll thank you for it. Because, yeah, because saying it doesn't work yeah. is not great. Giving it a, a, a minimal reproducible test case is great actually writing a test case that you know is failing that if the bug was fixed would pass it's even better i just know from i'm more intimate with the lucy project and they have even in the core they have like a, a test suite that you can have like a test case and assertion etc mm-hmm. etc it's part of the core language so you can actually just do that and then run your own tests. And you can see in, in the source code, there's a whole bunch of tests that you can copy and say, okay, right, this is failing, let's do this. Of course, you write it in the same language and the, the bug might be a language feature. So it might be a bug with assert. <laughs> so how do you test that? I assert that assert is broken. But um, I digress. But yeah, so you can do the testing. It's not glamorous, do the documentation. Uh, one project that I look out for is Unreal Engine, and every time they're about to release a new one, they have a massive release with these are the notes, these are the new things that we've done. So then they get a whole bunch of people saying like, well, this is broken, this is good, this is bad, and they get video, video, um, uh, you know, recording, screen sharing for especially for for Unreal Engine is really good because you can do like a little video, so like this is what went wrong, and here's a description, so you can just watch it. Reading tons of code of, of, you know, submitting your whole website saying there's something wrong here is really useless. And in fact, it's, it's, it's aggressive because you're actually slowing other people down. You're removing time that they don't have to fix a bug that probably is your problem rather than the code's problem. Yeah. 
Uh, so be nice. That's, that's one of the key things, and we're probably going to cycle back to this. Um, are we? He says scrolling down. Yeah. Um, but this is one of the key things. Is don't forget that the open source projects, even the ones that do have some kind of serious commercial support um, behind them and what have you, a lot of the people doing this work are doing it for the love of the work. They might be getting paid right. by the project, but the odds are very good they aren't. They're, they're doing it and, and getting paid by consultancy that they do around the project. Mm. So whatever you do, be nice to these people. Uh, there's there's way too much negativity in the open source world. Right. There's another way, uh, I was going to say, that you know, usually have... Um, there's another way that open source projects are, are supported or created, in in essence. So you've got this idea of having a consultancy, having a big company that does it as an as a offshoot of what they mm -hmm. do. But... Uh, and again, I keep on circling back to Lucy, but Lucy have got this idea of the Lucy Association in Switzerland, which is a, a non-profit association that has members, and each member has one vote, and they have to pay their dues. Is uh, I don't know what it, I guess it's an association. It's like the um, what's that football association? FIFA. The football FIFA. Yeah, uh, it's a similar. Is a I know. Let's not get into that. But it's a basic same structure in the sense that it's, it's, I think in Switzerland it's called a Verein. I can't. I don't know. I can't but, pronounce yeah. it. Well, but basically you have members that pay the dues every month, uh, and as one member has one vote. So it doesn't matter if you pay more money or less money. You can't pay for to have two votes. So it's very egalitarian. And for Lucy, it has a number of companies that. Uh, a part of it um, that I can't see on their website at the moment, but, um, but people like Auto Solutions, MSO, Pixel 8, Razia, Demon, and various other companies are members of of that association that support the, the project because it's, it's important to their business, mm -hmm. right? And and I think the Mozilla has got a similar association is a non profit uh, no sorry the eclipse project for example that's a non-profit uh, foundation for example which would be something similar which has a lot of companies that pay dues and with those dues you you create the software yeah and right. pay for the various things that you need to run the software yeah, you because know, right. it needs to be hosted somewhere. It needs fair enough. GitHub, GitHub is free for hosting of the code, but still, you need binaries, you need websites, you need um, integration, and all the rest of it. Um, so there's all sorts of little costs that can be covered off. Um, you might want to run a an event or run some promo. You might occasionally need to get a lawyer involved to review licensing, etc. And they're right. never free. There is no such thing as an open source lawyer. <laughs> No, but then again, what they're selling is not something that can be reproducible. It's not something that they can sell multiple times. They're doing a consultancy. So Okay, fair enough. And there are actually open source, I suppose Creative Commons is one of them. There are open source contracts and there are things like that. So it does it does have right. tendrils going uh, a bit further. Very well. Um, right. How would you go about creating an open source piece of software? I th you know, well, we've talked about GitHub, but GitHub has done a few very interesting things. One, well, you version control it, you create a version for it, but then you do a README. Say what the point is, how you use it, how, how you install your software. Mm -hmm. um, that's really, really important. Then choose a license. Say how you want to license this. You go to the open uh, source licenses um, in, what's it, opensource.org? 
and you choose one. There's a whole list of them and what their point is and what their, you know, what their effect is, so to speak. Then you set up a contributors agreement because you want to make sure that you keep the, the intellectual property or the, the project keeps inter intellectual property. Then you want to do, uh, uh, and in fact, GitHub does this for your project. If you go to a project in, in GitHub, it'll say, hey, do you want to add a readme? Do you want to add a contributors agreement? Do you want to add all these things that you wouldn't think of, right? Because you wouldn't be, you, you're trying to solve the problem when you first create your, your open source project. It'll be like, hey, it makes TV look better or, you know, it, it downloads stuff faster or whatever problem you're trying to solve. But then the, you've got the stuff around it, and it says, well, do you want to create tests? Here's Travis, for example, to, to run your tests, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the first way, mechanical way, I mean, uh, the process way that you'd go about it. Um, have I missed anything? There? I think there's a core step, uh, which is, yeah. do you want to open source? But we can kind of assume. Right, okay. Not yeah. everybody does. Right. And also not everything that you write needs to have an open source project around it. Um, right. It could just be that you know it's uh, it's not worth open sourcing, or it's um, too bespoke, or it's it's just not the kind of thing that would be shareable. Um, and this is right. where I get into a bit of a sticky spot because I'd always suggest that if you're working in um, open source tech, you should probably actually make it available as open source, um, even mm. if you don't think it's particularly useful because you never know, and you're reaping the benefits of other people's open source projects. So it's it's kind of a, a karma balance thing. But yeah, I think mm. technologically you've pretty much got it bang on. I mean, if you look at almost any open source project, the readme is really important. And there's normally like, um, there's four text documents alongside all the source mm -hmm. code. You've got readme, you've got license, you've got contrib, which tells people how mm -hmm. they can contribute. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and you've got install, which deals with kind of specific install or compilation details, mostly to keep the readme a bit shorter, right? And you'll see these all over the place. Now I've mentioned them, you won't stop seeing them in projects. Yeah. And another one that's been coming in is this code of conduct, which also has been, I've seen a lot more in projects, which is saying that be nice to each other, essentially. But this comes back to once your project gets to a certain size, and again, it's always easier to, to put these things in up front than it is to try and retrofit them. Um, but mm. once your project gets to a certain size, you are going to run into personality conflicts. You're going to run into people having different ideas. At best, these are amicable disagreements. These are, are debates on, on the route that the project should take. At worst, well, let's put it this way. Open source software has given the world some of the biggest flame wars I have ever seen. I mean, considering... Well, because it, it, it's, it's ideology, right? In a kind of weird way. It's ideology of how to solve a problem. It's like you, it can go into base parts of human nature about people's beliefs on, on how things should be. Yeah. I mean, this is... We are talking religious levels of uh, disagreement, kind of... <laughs> and when I say, you know, religious, I'm talking about, like, crusades, religious levels of disagreement. Um, so having a code of conduct in place is really, really useful to effectively provide the project some defense from that. And it's not really about right. preventing it from happening because you can't do that. But what it does mean is that actually if you've got 
an individual or a relationship or similar that is going to, it looks like it's turning toxic, that can kill an open source project stone dead. Um, yeah. Because nobody wants to work in that kind of environment. They're giving their time up for nothing. They're like, well, either I'm just going to go off and work on something else or, you know, depending on your licensing, I'm just going to fork this and do my own thing. Um, and there have yeah. definitely been examples of that. Um, well, um, the the famous one, I guess, of, and it's not code of conduct really, was Node when it became IO for a while. Yeah, yeah. So Node forked because they, the the main company that had been backing it had like been very slow with its releases, and then I think it all came back and they played nice. But there was a period that that Node, which was really on the rise, kind of forked off. And excuse the pun, they they forked their own project, and then they played nice, but that could have really stimmied and and stopped node proliferating proliferating as much as it did. Yeah, and it makes it really confusing for the user of the project because now they've got two things to choose from. In some cases, you get forks or um, or I mean, they are forks, but you get these kind of shifts that are actually for the benefit of the community. If we look at LibreOffice versus OpenOffice, um, if we look at oh, yeah. MariaDB versus MySQL. Well, MySQL got bought by Oracle. But it's still a and GPL my- project, but Oracle would try oh, yeah, to dual true, license yeah. it and what have you. And the MariaDB right. uh, team, which includes the original author of MySQL, um, said, well, no, that's not in keeping with the project that we set up. That's not how this should be working. We're going to do this this way. Um, so we now have, again, we're back to having a true open source relational database system, which for a while, Oracle, it was all a bit touch and go. How do you have an open source database system that competes with one of the most expensive and dominant commercial database systems in the world? Hey, you're taking the lunch money. It's got to be a conflict, That's when right? Get angry. And that was the big concern. Right. So, in some cases, it kind of helps. But yeah, make sure that you're you're ready to get a bit of community management um, under your belt. Make sure that you've got a code of conduct so that you can actually point to it and say, "No, you're being out of order. You are in breach. We're gonna, you know, remove your commit access or whatever." And this is why. I mean, I always liken a code of conduct to to having the baseball bat underneath the desk. You never use it unless you have to use it. <laughs> Um, the other thing is, and this is actually quite an interesting one, is uh, uh, twofold. Don't try and be Linus. Um, you know, Linus Torvalds has this reputation as being incredibly acerbic. Um, he's really quite brutal. Some of the stuff that he sends out to the Linux mailing list is insulting. Um, he can get away with it because, frankly, he invented Linux. You can't. Um, neither can I. Neither can anybody else. Um, but also be prepared for the potential that your project gets big, gets popular, and you are no longer in charge of it. Right. You're, you're, you're there for the yeah. ride. I mean, uh, and also this is a whole thing about open source. You can say, it's my project. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I want with it. And it's not. I mean, I got, kind of got involved in the open source world through asking a question. So I started going, using Macs and I'd, been made redundant so i started doing other projects and i had a mac right because that's all i had at home i wasn't going to buy a new machine so i was looking for uh, an editor for cold fusion way back when and there was an open source version of it which was to me was free right i didn't care that there was anything else it was just a free version on eclipse and i'm like okay great 
don't care what this open source is. It was free. So I started using it and I said, well, you know what would be really good? It's like if I could press F1 and get help on, on, a, ta on a tag or a function. And they went, yeah, go for it. And but like, go for it. If you want it, you make it. And well, fine, I'll, I'll do it then. And that's kind of my first step into it. Uh, and I don't think that maybe there is enough of this, but there's not. I don't see enough people going like, "Hey, this is a project. Can I contribute to it? It's broken. Fix it." It should be like, "It's broken. Fix it." Yeah. Okay, you fix it yourself. And I don't have time. It's like, well, do I have time to fix your problem? <laughs> you know, it works for me. And so you should always try and you should try and fix other problems before you create an open source project. I still think this is this is a problem with the JavaScript world, which everyone tries to create a new, better way of doing the same thing again and again and again and again. And there's so many different projects out there because people don't want to fix what's what you think is problem with the main project. I'm not going to point at any specific projects but it, well, you but can't I think it might have slowed down <laughs> yeah I think it might have slowed down a little bit now like but having said that every other week I see another another project um, I'm like okay what do you do I do like this but just slightly differently yeah and this is something that comes across in pretty much it's weird because a lot of some languages are more um, susceptible to this than others and they don't tend to be well Languages themselves, you don't tend to have massive duplication because programming languages are hard to write. Which is not mm. to say that MVC frameworks are not hard to write, but they're kind of night and day compared to actually writing a compiler and lexical parsing and all right. the rest of it. Um, so generally speaking, new programming languages do come along, but they come along to scratch a specific itch or to improve something or to build on something that's now become available um, within mm. the language some of the languages have massive amounts of kind of frameworks and modules and it can get quite hard to navigate some of them have very few right but but with nearly air well i'm going to say nearly everyone like let's say the linux core might be a little bit difficult you should have a project uh, a file in there saying how you contribute and how you build this software how can i get from the moment i've checked this stuff out to something that's running and that's missing in a lot of projects, I've noticed. Yeah. I get a lot of stuff that says, like, well, you should know this, and do a grunt thing, and a, and it happens. And you're like, well, okay, my search to my, my how I found you wasn't through having all this other knowledge. It's like I might need to know how to, how to do the node thing. Now, I'm not asking you to tell me how to do the node thing. Say, go and get node. You need node, you need to do this NPM thing, which you need to go to NPM, and then you do this. These are the commands once you've learned these things, right? These are the dependencies. And that's missing a lot of the time. Yeah. And that kind of assume that you have a baseline of knowledge. So I suppose the other thing, just to kind of round off, is uh, Linux is actually a really interesting example of an open source project because the core project, the the, the Linus-y bit that he built, is one tiny central section. It is the kernel of the operating system. All of the other bits right. that hang off it, the window management, um, uh, some of the, you know, anything that isn't kernel, basically, is a separate project. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So you've got like thousands of projects that make up yeah. one. And the nice thing then is then you're you're kind of then you're going shopping. So you kind of say, well actually you take Node, which is a central thing, and you want to run a, a specific framework, you can go and find that framework. But at the same time, what you do tend to find is that there are layers upon layers in successful open source communities where you might have all of this interrelationship, but fundamentally, nobody is massively duplicating effort. They'll be like, okay, well, I need a thing that did this with this thing, so that was the new project I started. Rather than just duplicating an existing um, solution. Because right. there you can get involved. I have... <laughs> yeah, duplication is bad. Yeah. But there's plenty of it in the open source um, world, unfortunately. Yeah. But, I mean, but this is good, right? Because it's people stretching out, trying to create their own projects. So we've been quite negative in, in those kind of things. But the positive side is that this is actually very good. This is, you've got Darwinian, you know, evolution theory in action, right? So you, <laughs> so you have stuff that dies off, stuff that, that grows really well. It has modifications. It mutates into in beautiful ways and creates better projects. That's right? the other way of looking at it, is that, yeah, we've got natural selection of all of these open source projects, and you do see it. You see it in the rise and fall of, um, you know, if you think uh, on the, the front end, uh, I think all three of these are open source. Um, anybody mm. remember Backbone? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've got one project that has... That, that was a thing once, right? And it was dominating. It was <laughs> kind of the the dominant force. And then along comes Angular, and it knocks Backbone off its perch. And now you've got Angular and React in kind of the head-to-head. And you've got a whole ton of other little bits and pieces going on at the same time, but you've got two fairly clear dominant players. In five years' time, they might have been completely usurped by something which came along with a better paradigm or, or something. Sorry? React, React and underscore or yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, and meanwhile, whilst they're fighting these two, in, in my mind, this is a bit like Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, because um, they do the same thing, um, but in slightly different ways. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're having this giant battle. They're trampling the, the JavaScript front-end landscape underneath them, and the end result is all of these other little modules and little side projects and cool stuff is kind of coming off. Um, so, yeah, it is massively productive. You get an awful lot of additional energy put into these projects. At the same time, it can make it a little bit daunting um, based on just the sheer choice, the smorgasbord, if you will, the smorgasbord um, of software but, that's available to us as, as devs to use now. And But always look when the last commit was. Right? Always look at when the last commit was. Um, and always look at the issues count as well. Yeah, if you're on GitHub, yeah. see see how many issues there are and see what kind of their their response rates like. Because if they haven't, if they could have committed last week, but if they if they've got issues that date back twenty years, um, and they're not talking, then it's not going to be a particularly healthy community. One final thing for me is, um, and I absolutely love this: um, open source, not just software. We've seen right. the the rise of open source hardware um, and open okay. source electronics. Which is kind of oh, cool. really? Because um, you know, the, uh, we we write software, we run software on our on our PCs or, or Macs or whatever. Um, so open source processes are now a thing, um, and there's currently oh, wow. a project underway to develop a new PowerPC architecture. 
um, that will be completely open source. And if you think, if anybody knows anything about chip design and fabrication, that's an expensive process. Um, so it's good to have other eyes on it before you start going. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and if I put my tinfoil hat on, it means that you can guarantee that the government hasn't backdoored it, which of course doesn't happen. Um, but at the same time, right. it's, it's free <laughs> and open. There's no licensing restrictions. Um, yeah, open source encryption algorithms. So you can go like, here you go, have a look at this. There, there is no backdoor. And if there is, people will spot, spot it. it, fix it, hopefully. I mean, to be honest, well, open source a- encryption is one of my big... It. We're going to briefly get political. Uh, every so often, the UK government comes along and says, we're going to ban encryption. Yeah, yeah. I think we had a recent round of well, it's this. Well, Theresa May. She keeps on doing this every few... few it was e- even before Theresa May, there was the, yeah. the Snoopers yeah. Charter and there was all the stuff that kind of came before. And they're like, every so often, somebody in government stands up and says, encryption is bad, we're going to ban it. Um, you can't ban something that has been open-sourced. You can't ban something that is information. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's out there. The cat's yeah. out of the bag. It's, it's, it's that knowledge is there. Put it away. If it, the knowledge has been out, if you try to ban something, hey, I'll take it into my bedroom and I'm going to write it. I'm going to make it even better. And then give it out to people. There'll be guys just walking around, just passing SD cards out. Saying, do you want yeah. some uh, AS? Got some AS? Got some <laughs> two fish? <laughs> <coughs> Um, But yeah, so we've got um, hardware and these are things like 3D printing, uh, which is, to be honest, a revolution that's left me a little cold. I kind of get it, but it's not something that I've been massively involved in. Right, but the thing is, is that's just the price. But I remember at one point I'm going to get, is it Something Maker? I can't remember the, the name of it, which was a 3D printer that was open source, which you can make more 3D printers out of that 3D printer, which is, well, and buying a few other things, which but is is like genius. It's like, well, like this is how you spread. Yeah, it's this it's is, kind this of is, the ultimate uh, viral 3D printer. Um, that's GPL at work. Yeah, um, <laughs> and if you think about obviously what the 3D printing revolution means is you know home fabrication and what have you, it's got a way to go. But they're already starting to look at these things in terms of okay, this isn't just about concept or software. This design for a better water tap that saves water is open source, and you can 3D print it on equipment that's open source. Um, mm. There's um, a fantastic project called. And um, I'm going to have to kind of verify this. Um, it's an open source tractor. Well, as an actual like dirt, mo- dirt moving and, yeah. and thing dragging tractor. Yeah. Um, this is a legit project, um, and it's designed to. Uh, I think it's called Life Track with a C. Um, and the whole point behind it is that um, tractors are expensive. You know, if you're um, trying to get a okay. John Deere or um, one of the other tractors are available, um, a Massey or similar, you know, they're, they're a lot of money, and they're actually locked down. It's- this is brilliant. You know, the software inside these tractors is often restricted. You have to use uh, specific parts from the manufacturer. Um, you can't just kind of repair it or fix it yourself. You have you're locked into this ultimate closed ecosystem. And, of course, there are some countries in the world where agriculture is important to all countries in the world, but they can't afford to pay for you know, a latest state-of-the-art tractor. They just want something that lets them pull the plough or till the field or whatever. Right. And this is what the Lifetrack project is doing, is they've open-sourced all of the hardware, all of the designs. Um, you still need to build it. You still need to put it together. Yeah. But... 
But you've got a civilization for it. You've got a, you know, a, a map and a plan for it and an ability to use it and, and the freedom to use it um, without being sued by some other company saying, no, you're using our patented dirt-moving technology. Yeah. Um, and that, to be honest, is exactly where open source really comes to the fore. This idea of removing... Uh, blocks to access that would be beneficial. This is where I get my hippie my my hippie trousers on and start dancing around, uh, dancing around in a stone circle. Um, but it is it's about freedom of information in the truest sense. It's about making that available and accessible because you don't know when you're sat there or we're, we're sat there from our position of, of relative privilege. We don't know where the next amazing idea is going to come from. We don't know where the next medical breakthrough is going to come from. Or, or the next whatever it happens to be. Right. But at the same time, if there are solutions and systems in place that prevent people from accessing information and tools, then they could have been the source of the cure for cancer. But right. we'll never know is, is because that, whole, they couldn't afford yeah. Windows. Right. Or they couldn't afford a program that, that does gene sequencing yeah. that, that they'll be masters at. Or, or whatever the tools are for for, for doing that. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot more hardware that's going to be open sourced and improved on, um, which is just great because we're now improving the speed at, uh, at which we, things we can do. I'm not against commercial software, but even massive companies like Microsoft or Apple that have thousands of engineers are nothing compared to the power of the engineers across the world, right? So this is this is why it's a great benefit because you can have like so many people just looking at the problem and solving a problem or or chipping away at a problem, whatever that is, whether it's a JavaScript library or a tractor, and just fixing yeah. it. And I mean, Microsoft are one of the best barometers for this in terms of the power and the inevitability of this change. And I do believe it's inevitable. Um, there's a great, um, I mean, you, you've got a, a quote here in the notes from 2001. I can't remember exactly when he said it, yep. but Steve Ballmer, uh, probably around about this time, described Linux as a cancer. He was right. so against this kind of freedom and sharing concept that he said it would destroy the software industry and what have you. Um, and I think the quote that you've got listed, open source is an intellectual property destroyer. I can't imagine something that could be worse than this for software businesses and the intellectual property business. Flash forward, 2017, Microsoft, .NET Core, Doing open bad. source. Right. Um, right, and they're doing Bash. They're doing like uh, um, uh, MSSQL on Linux yeah. and Docker images, and is the whole environment of that. That's just amazing. And I think you could say, you know, being cynical, that actually they're just you know going with the prevailing wind. But to my view, yeah. that demonstrates that this is something that has proven itself as a superior route, and is therefore around for a long time to come. Yeah, I, I think it's becoming the, the uh, SOP, the standard operating procedure of at least the software world. There's still, I was very surprised that uh, I'm not going to name names, but I was looking at a version control system and they told me the price of it. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm just going to use Git. Uh, you know, it was massively expensive. But yes, the future is amazing. When it works, it's amazing. 
when when we develop stuff is amazing when we work together it's amazing and we can do really good things I think that's a good place to to stop it it is uh, so uh, you're going to send me my licensing check for the last couple of podcasts right uh, yeah right yeah. right yeah <laughs> Uh, and we, we we will do a Creative Commons on this podcast. We should say that we got some great feedback. I got a couple of uh, tweets and uh, some comments on our YouTube channel that were very positive, which is most welcome. By the way, we have a YouTube channel. Um, I think we have a link on it on our website, and if not, you can go to YouTube and look for Local Host Podcast. It's actually on my YouTube channel. I don't think there's... Links on YouTube are terrible. You can't just go, let's YouTube forward slash whatever. It's... Uh, but look for us because we we put the episodes onto YouTube because that's a popular way of listening to stuff. Weirdly enough, uh, you can also sit, you know, tweet us if you have compliments or you have comments uh, or discussions or you're angry at us. You can email us at show at localhost.fm. You can tweet us at localhost.fm or go, just go to our website and all the contact, including the YouTube channel, will probably be there on http forward slash forward slash localhost.fm. Uh, using open source protocols, I believe. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure. As ever. And till the next episode of the Local Host Podcast.